It's Monday the 9th of March and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, what does the departure of Elizabeth Warren say about the state of politics in the Democratic Party and beyond? This is really about beating Trump. And so I think voters, perhaps slightly unusually, were strategically voting to look for the candidate who would be most likely to beat Trump. We'll hear from Barack Obama's former advisor, Amy Pope. Plus, Canada's race for a seat at the UN Security Council continues. And is the truth really out there? Our affairs editor, Christopher Cermak, on how to debunk a conspiracy theory. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. The departure of Elizabeth Warren from the Democratic presidential contest last week wasn't just a blow to her supporters. It also hit hard for all those who hoped that, four years on from Hillary Clinton's devastating loss to Donald Trump, another enormously qualified woman might have a shot at Washington's top job. But despite her deep understanding of policies and a sharp talent for debate, Senator Warren's campaign struggled to cut through with a clear message that resonated with voters. Amy Pope is an associate fellow at the US and America's program at Chatham House and a former advisor to President Barack Obama. Here's how I see this. You get in this fight, you know when you go into it. There were multiple people who just said, this will be part of the problem. Um, But you get in the fight because you just got to keep beating at it until you finally break the thing. Uh, We'll know that we can have a woman in the White House when we finally elect the woman to the White House, right? I think this is a really unusual primary election for a couple of reasons. One is that the field was so crowded so that you had people who were clearly leaders, who were clearly offering voters an inspiring point of view. The vote and the support for them was being diluted just by the fact that there were so many other people in that field. And the second piece is that this is really about beating Trump. And so I think voters, perhaps slightly unusually, were strategically voting to look for the candidate who would be most likely to beat Trump. And I think, frankly, that means that they're less willing to take a risk on somebody who is, in this case, a woman, a much more populist message, and a much more anti-business, anti-tech messaging, sort of anti-some of the big, big money forces. And I think people were seeing that as a risk that might be too big to take at this moment in time. So let's be clear, whenever someone hears the term Medicare for all who want it, understand what that really means. It's Medicare for all who can afford it. And that's the problem we've got. Medicare for all is the gold standard. It is the way we get health care coverage for every single American, including the family whose child's been diagnosed with cancer, including the person who's just gotten an MS diagnosis. That's how we make sure that everyone gets health care. We can pay for this. I've laid out the basic principles. Costs are going to go up. Some of her positions were very 
difficult for conservative Democrats. For example, her position on health care, you know, she initially adopted sort of a Medicare for all, which she then modified a bit. But that's the kind of issue that really strikes at the heart of the sort of middle of the road voter. They don't want to give up their existing health care plans. They like them. They mostly want to make sure that things like prescription drugs are more affordable, that health care providers can't discriminate against them if they have a pre-existing condition. But they don't necessarily want the government to take over all of health care. And so that's what we heard consistently from voters when she took that position particularly in places like Michigan, in Wisconsin, the the states that are really going to matter. Look, I think the one thing the president doesn't want to do from the very beginning is face me, because I will beat him, period. You know, we're now looking at a field of men who are all about the same age. If you compare Trump to Biden and you look at some of the concerns about Biden, it tends to do with, well, he's gaffes when he's speaking, kind of says what is what is on his mind. You compare that to someone like Trump, and we're just in a totally different world. So in some ways, having a Trump versus Biden campaign is really helpful in the fact that Biden's primary weaknesses are completely dwarfed by um, the magnitude at which Trump has some of the same weaknesses. To Canada now, where the race continues for a seat at the United Nations Security Council. Today marks the final day of former Canadian Prime Minister Joe Clark's week-long trip to Algeria, Bahrain, Egypt and Qatar. With Justin Trudeau dealing with challenging domestic matters, including strikes related to Canada's energy policy, Clark was enlisted as Special Envoy to bolster Canada's campaign for one of two temporary seats up for grabs on the UN Security Council this June over Norway or Ireland. But it might be too little too late, according to Dr Besma Momani, a political scientist at the University of Waterloo. Not only has Canada committed fewer resources to the region, but human rights aren't at the top of the list for many of these countries, and Canada is coming in with lofty goals, such as a feminist foreign policy and a human rights-centric agenda. But Canada's reasons for wanting the UN seat aren't all lofty. Diplomats hope more regular contact with China can help smooth over a tough period in bilateral relations. Returning to Washington now, where the House of Representatives has been taken over by a group of humanoid lizards that have been existing in secret for decades, deep beneath the Earth's crust. Just kidding. Among the many lessons we might take from the rise of Donald Trump is that conspiracy theories aren't always crazy and outlandish. In fact, it's often the dull and boring and, well, somewhat believable stories that attract the most followers and cause the most damage. Monocle's affairs editor, Christopher Cermak, explains. There's a sad truth about the human mind and conspiracy theories. Our memory of them is extremely sticky. Studies find that debunking them can even be counterproductive. People remember the conspiracy and forget the debunking. What does seem to work is confronting the conspiracy head-on rather than passively, and from a source the reader finds credible. Best is someone in the believer's own camp or ideology. So it's all the more disappointing when responsible media outlets get this balance wrong. 
take a story last week on Vox entitled, quote, The Democratic Party's Risky Bet on Joe Biden. The piece focuses not on the objectively risky aspects of his candidacy, such as age, history, or his proneness to gaffes, but on a Trump-peddled conspiracy, that the former vice president was soft on corruption in Ukraine because his son Hunter worked for the country's gas company Burisma. The article goes on to point out that the claim is obviously risibly false since Biden actually fought corruption in Ukraine. Nevertheless, it is being exploited by his opponents and is thus a weakness. From a political standpoint, there's some truth to this. Donald Trump has turned the Ukraine focus onto Biden to such a degree that it's having an impact on voters. But nowhere does this Vox article mention just how deplorable this state of affairs is and that such false narratives need to be pushed back on aggressively and credibly and repeatedly. Instead, readers are left with a sense that the Ukraine affair is a reason to vote against Joe Biden and for his opponent in the Democratic nomination race, Bernie Sanders. Is this really what we've come to, treating conspiracy theories as a political weakness? The sad reality is there will be plenty of media outlets intentionally peddling false narratives in the coming months. All the more reason for responsible ones to work tirelessly to counteract them. My thanks to our affairs editor, Christopher Cermak. Elsewhere on today's agenda... Jonathan Anderson has built a reputation as one of the most interesting names in fashion. This week, his J.W. Anderson label launches its latest collaboration with Japan's Uniqlo. The ongoing partnership has introduced the brand to a mainstream audience, with clothes that feature some of Anderson's trademarks, but have been made more accessible for high street shoppers. It's sure to be a busy week for the designer, with the doors also due to open on a new flagship store in London's Soho on Thursday. And if you're in the market for a prestigious book publisher, well, now's your chance. The hunt is on for a buyer of Simon & Schuster, the company behind authors including Stephen King, Annie Proulx, and Bob Woodward, to name a few. Its corporate owner, Viacom CBS, says the publisher doesn't fit within its new focus on streaming, sports, and digital video. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Tuesday.